Welcome to Stories from the Center of the Universe, the podcast about the human experience. All right, Coach Kevin Eastman, welcome to the Center of the Universe. Thank you so much for joining us. And I should say that uh, we're connected through Andrew Mock, who is also joining us. Uh, Andrew will be co-hosting on this podcast for the first time. Looking forward to that as well. So, Coach, I know you grew up in New Jersey. Uh, my wife is from Jersey. She's from what I would call New York, Jersey. I believe you're from what I would call uh, Philly, Jersey. Yeah, exactly. What was it like growing up in uh, Southern Jersey? Well, it, it was good. I, I think, um, you know, I grew up in a family of 10. So uh, we actually had our own basketball team. So we didn't have to wait about for anyone else to come or the neighbors to come uh, to get a game of two on two or three on three. Um, but for me, it, it, it was good because it was a safe place. You could, uh, you could feel comfortable uh, like walking to the park to play basketball or uh, walking to school, which might be a mile or so uh, from our house. So, uh, and then the, the town was very friendly and very accommodating. Uh, and they loved sports, and I happened to, to love sports as well. So it was a nice environment to, to, to be in. Uh, so for me, it was really good. What sports did you play besides basketball? Well, I started out uh, playing uh, all the things that the young kids do, baseball, football, basketball. And then uh, played basketball and football my freshman year in high school. And then decided, um, you know, it, it seems like I'm uh, – I'm pretty good in basketball, so let me go ahead and stick with that and, and really concentrate on that. So that's what I did, and, and it was a great decision. What position did you play primarily? In basketball? In basketball, yeah. Yeah, oh, I was a little guy, so I was a guard. Point or shooting guard, usually? Uh, uh, point, because I wanted to make sure who got the ball and when they got it. So uh, the point guard does that. And if I felt that no one should get the ball, then I'll shoot it. So uh, – when you start with the ball, you get to make those decisions. Who would you say is the, the better shooter, you or Jake? Uh, Jake takes more shots <laughs> uh, because he's not shy when he's on the court. I probably had a higher percentage. And I know I had more assists because, as you remember, Andrew, Jake would get uh, – he'd break out in hives when he had to throw the ball to somebody. Right? He was allergic to passing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he, he was what I would call a, a vacuum on the court. Yeah, exactly. But uh, he, he was skilled. I mean, there's no doubt about it. And at the high school level, I, I would say he was very skilled. But then each level you go up, it's just like in life. Each level you go up, uh, the demands change, the expectations change, the skill that's required at that level changes. Uh, the definitions change, you know, hard work in high school as a new definition when you get to college and play basketball. When you get out in the real world with your first first job, hard work has a new definition. So, um, but Jake had a great career. So uh, Wendy and I are really proud of him. Very cool. Yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting. Like, it's something I noticed. So playing sports, right? Like freshman in high school, you're kind of at the, the bottom of the totem pole. And then you, you get better each year. And then you're a senior and, and you know, you're, you're the big man on campus. Um, and then when you get to college, it's like a whole new mindset, right? Like you're not the strongest, you're not the fastest. And in fact, you're not even that important when you're there as a freshman and you got to start all over again. Yeah, I think each step up 
presents itself with different challenges. And uh, that's, and that's a good thing because that weeds out those who are not maybe really committed uh, to those who maybe uh, do it for enjoyment. You know, the higher level you go, it's more about commitment. And you, you, you of course, you love the game. So there is enjoyment there. Uh, but you got to put in the work. I mean, uh, I often talk when I when I do my corporate speaking that uh, maybe our biggest one of our biggest opponents is success because uh, probably its best player that's on the team of success is uh, failure. And uh, failure is going to be put in front of you. Embarrassment is going to be put in front of you. Mistakes are going to be put in front of you. So how do you react and overcome those uh, really is the key to to moving up and in anything that we do. And, and Jake experienced that from going to maybe uh, one of the best players in his area to having to fight and claw to stay on the floor. And he figured out a way to do it. Very cool. Coach, let's back up to uh, your childhood. You were one of 10. What number were you? Uh, right in the middle. So whether that's five or six, you can determine that. Uh, so uh, right in the middle. So, uh, and everyone says, uh, oh, that's really good. But when you're in a family of 10, right in the middle, the young ones hang with the young ones. The, the, those four that are older than you hang with together and you're stuck uh, kind of on an island sometimes. So, uh, but for me, uh, what it allowed me to do, uh, because there was so much activity all the time, I was not as confident back then, uh, probably more introverted back then. Uh, so it allowed me to just kind of stay behind the scenes, even in the house. Um, so for me, my, my rescue was, was going out to the, to the back, to the driveway and, and getting a basketball and, and, and shooting hoop. Gives it a new meaning to a uh, middle kid. Yeah, I'm sure there's different, <clears throat> different experiences with, with, uh, different children who are the middle one. It's one thing to be a middle of three, right? Cause you only have one to your right, one to your left. When you're the middle of 10, you got a bunch on your right, a bunch on your left, a bunch older, a bunch younger. So, um, uh, but it was good. I, I mean, I wouldn't have traded it for, for anything because we, we are and we have become the, uh, the total of all of our, our experiences. And I've been fortunate to have a, you know, a, a good life thus far. And, and uh, probably a lot of that was, was uh, uh, generated in that house. Very cool. So coach, you, uh... Well, clearly a very good basketball player. Uh, your senior in high school, did you know you were, would play in college? Uh, but by then, yeah, I, I had in England because I was already being uh, recruited. It, it's back in your freshman and sophomore year when, um, when there are those seeds of doubt. Uh, but because I loved the sport so much and just loved playing it, I really wasn't focused on uh, where I will be in two years, three years, that sort of thing. Uh, and that has carried with me uh, still today in that, um, to, to me, I just try and take care of, of, of today, right? As a matter of fact, I, I wake up and I look at two questions uh, each and every day. And um, question number one is, did I waste yesterday? Mm. And if the answer to that is yes, then, then I've got to really uh, get with it today. Uh, and then the second question is, how would I feel if I waste today? And I think probably your listeners would answer it the same way uh, I always answer it. I, I wouldn't feel like I, I, I gave my best or, or put my best out there. So I wouldn't feel good about it. So those two for me are mindset questions. Uh, 
So, um, but you know, uh, it really gets back to what we we're talking about with Jake. You know, if 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 you do want to keep advancing in your career or, or or in life, there will be stumbles, and you'll have to react to those stumbles, and there will be challenges, and you may not know where you will end up. But if you take care of today, like if you're if you're your best today, you got a shot maybe of getting to where you want to go tomorrow. Those are two great questions, Coach. I'm 52. I may uh, adopt those if you don't mind. All yours. Thank you. So how'd you choose uh, Richmond as a college destination? Yeah, well, uh, ironically, I actually chose, I was being recruited by uh, a number of schools, uh, narrowed it down to a school near my hometown, and that was Temple University in Philadelphia and the University of Richmond. And I actually committed to the Temple staff that I would go there. And then um, during that period after I committed, uh, I, I actually uh, was on the playground playing against a Temple player, really good player from Temple, basketball player, was on the team at Temple. And one of the things he just said in passing uh, was not really good about Temple. He didn't say it in any way other than it just came out in conversation. So then I started to think a little more. And then I said to my dad, uh, you know, I, I, I think I want to change my mind. Uh, and he said, are you sure? And he said to sleep on it. So the next morning I woke up and, and I had actually, I had a dream of me walking the campus of Richmond because they had flown me down to, uh, to visit the campus before that. So I said, I'm sure. And then he said what I didn't want him to say. Okay, you call the coaches at Temple and tell them. I was expecting like a father's supposed to call them for you, <clears throat> but no. Mm -mm. Uh, so it was a lesson in responsibility. Uh, it was a lesson that you actually can do some things that you don't think you can do or you don't want to do. Uh, but I didn't know it was a lesson at the time. You know, so often lessons are, are really figured out well after you could have used them. Yeah. So, uh, University of Richmond today, and all three of us live in the Richmond area today. Is that correct, Coach? You live yeah. here. So when I've driven through the University of Richmond campus and I see the, the license plates on the cars, none of them are from Virginia, and none of them are from south of Virginia. They're all from the northeast. Uh, was it like that when you went to Richmond? Uh, not as much. Yeah, I was kind of a, maybe an outsider at that time. I can remember asking uh, my first week on campus, I asked somebody uh, where a hoagie shop was <laughs> and there was no, nothing came out of their mouth. Like, and then I thought, okay, well, maybe I didn't say it loud enough. Like, do you guys know where a hoagie shop is? <laughs> well, they didn't know what a hoagie was. You know, it was a submarine, right? <laughs> right. Or a sub sandwich. Um, <clears throat> so that's when I figured out, okay, I'm not in Jersey anymore. That's, that's hilarious. Uh, yeah, I, I still know what a hoagie is, Coach. Yeah, it's better than a sub. <laughs> because, yeah, they, because it's got the New Jersey grease of the fingers of those who make it. Because back in the day, they didn't put those things on their hands. <laughs> right? Uh, we were a lot healthier back in the day when people didn't do all this stuff. Right. Yeah. Stronger what, immune systems, if you will. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, what are your fondest memories of playing at Richmond? Uh, just the camaraderie um, and um, with the teammates uh, being in the locker room, uh, the road trips, um, you know, 
it's more of the relationships that I remember than any specific game or shot. Uh, so, um, and you know, I was fortunate in that I was a good player there too. So uh, maybe there was a, a greater comfort uh, which allowed me to even enjoy the experience uh, more. Um, so, but uh, you know, early on there were some there were some struggles, like just trying to figure out once again. Um, like I think it's good to be a rookie again. Like we were talking about my son Jake, and he get, went to college. He was a rookie again. Well, I was a rookie again when I went to college coaching. I was a rookie again when I went into the NBA and coached. Um, <clears throat> then I left the NBA. I think it's four seasons ago now, maybe five, and I entered the speaking business. And it was fun to be a rookie again in that business uh, because uh, I, I think uh, rookie, when you're a rookie, it provides energy, right? Uh, because you got to catch up with all the veterans. Uh, and, and I'm still catching up uh, in, in the world of speaking. So, um, but the memories were, were more about the people than they were what happened. Who was your coach? Well, I started out with a guy by the name of Lewis Mills. And then he left, and then I had a guy by the name of Carl Sloan, uh, who, who recently passed away. Uh, so those were my two college coaches. Uh, and the other, other irony of that is when Jake went to Bradley University, he had two coaches. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, two different coaches. It's, uh, it's somewhat unusual, right? Coaches tend to stay for a while, especially back then. Well, back then, for sure. Yeah. Uh, now it's, you know, you, the, the timeline to win is, has sped up uh, quite a bit. So uh, we're seeing, you know, 30 to 35, if not more uh, openings every year in, 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 on the men's side of college basketball. At what point in your life did you know you were going to coach as a career? When the playing part of my life told me you're not good enough anymore. Uh, so after I got done playing, uh, college, I had the opportunity to play in what was then, uh, uh there was the NBA and then there was a, a league called the AABA, uh, which was kind of, uh, uh, the league below the NBA. It was still a professional league. You got paid all that sort of stuff. Um, but that eventually folded as many of those types of leagues do, uh, because they don't have the funding. So once that folded, I just decided, you know, I love basketball. Uh, I worked camps all each and every summer. So that allowed me the opportunity to work with, with players, help them improve their games. I enjoyed that. So the natural progression was just to go into coaching. And I, I, I was able to do that as a graduate assistant at the University of Richmond. Um, so, so that was perfect. And the pro team I played on, their home base was Richmond. So uh, all of that turned out really, really well. Coach, your AABA team th that you played with has the best name ever. And I'm saying this as a guy from the Richmond area. You, you played for the Richmond Virginians. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, that was a long name to go across the front of the jersey. Uh, so, but, um, but you know what? I, I wouldn't have cared what name was on the front of the jersey. You know, you had an opportunity to play and get paid to play uh, something you love doing. I mean, I would have never thought of that even my uh, sophomore year in college. Yeah, it's a pretty cool thing. Basketball is a really fun sport and to get paid to play it, that's, that's, that's a dream come true for uh, very few people. Yeah, just didn't get paid long. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, but still, it was a great experience. And, and uh, that's the other thing you learn in life is you just got to move on. 
And my wife always says, well, you know, I hate it because whenever anything happens to you negatively, you just move on to the next thing. So for some reason, I've been able to, to do that. Uh, and, and I think it's a, a plus for me, really, because a lot of people will harbor those feelings of uh, uh, failure and, and uh, not, not living up to their own personal expectations, uh, probably to the point where it affects them uh, currently and then, and then even into their futures. Yeah, living, living in the moment, living for today is, is the better mindset for sure. Andrew, it looked like you were about to say something. I was just going to ask, like, when you decided to go into coaching, was there, did you ever have a, a coach have an impact on you where, like, it was such a positive impact and that's what, you know, the love of the game, but also having kind of like a role model that, that you wanted to, I guess, follow after? Well, I probably, again, I didn't know it at the time, uh, but my high school coach, uh, you know, he would come and meet us on the playground, which I thought was really, uh, really a neat thing. And uh, because you always thought that that your coaches were older and they didn't even know what you did, let alone showed up where you were. Um, So uh, he, he probably had more of an impact on me. Uh, than anything else in, in that uh, he, he taught me that you can be very, very competitive and still care uh, for your players. You know, um, what I talk about now is you, you can be very demanding without being demeaning, whether you are in sport or you're a leader or a manager in the, in, in the corporate world. Um, you know, everybody thinks if, if you're not demanding, then you're soft. No, if you lay out the expectations, and, they, and, and there's clarity behind those expectations for everyone who works for you, uh, then the natural uh, next step is there will be accountability to those expectations. And if you lay that out clearly and it's understood prior, um, uh, then I think uh, you can be demanding and not demeaning, uh, but only if you do those things. And, and he did those things. And even though I wasn't really sure what the lesson was then, I get it now. Yeah, and, and the bigger point, I think, is uh, all of that leads to just being more effective as an individual, and I think it makes the team better as well when everybody is in that environment and living in that, inside uh, that framework. Yeah, because I can't sit here and tell you that, that positivity works 100% of the time, but I, I'm pretty sure that, that negativity, negativity, it does work 100% of the time. Who wants to be called whatever they're called, right? That's, that's a demeaning uh, maybe word. Uh, nobody, you know, who, who wants to hate to go into their workplace or, or to practice because they know that it's just gonna be negative all day long. Uh, nobody does. So I, I, I really do believe that, that negativity works 100% of the time. Uh, positively, positivity, if used properly with some work ethic behind it, uh, can work at a high clip as well. Coach, you were an assistant coach for a lot of your career. You were a head coach uh, for a couple of different colleges. What did you enjoy about head coaching uh, and, and assistant coaching? And then what did you not enjoy so much about both? Yeah, well, um, the, the enjoyment about the assistant coach is you're probably at a, a point in your career where you still need to learn more. Uh, so that constant uh, getting up every day, trying to get a little bit better. Right. Uh, that was that that was good. Uh, the role that you play, you know, I, I often tell coaches that 
we, we all have different responsibilities, but we have the same job. Meaning when you're an assistant coach, we all, someone might have the offense, another one may have the defense, someone may be the lead recruiter. We all have different responsibilities. But what you learn is you have one job, and that's to make uh, your head coach you're working for look great, right? Do everything you can. That may mean having the tough conversation with the player so the head coach doesn't have to do it, right? It may be taking some workload off of the head coach's desk so that he can concentrate on the team and not having to deal with all these things around campus, let's say, if you're in college. Um, so, and then you learn that you are part of something. You are not the person. And then as a head coach, you, you, you learn that you, you uh, still have to come in and work when, after you've lost a game. You still have to uh, now care for 12 to 15 to 25 people. When as an assistant coach, maybe you, it's more of a, a personal thing, right? Because the 12 inches from the seat of an assistant coach over to the seat of the head coach. As an assistant coach, I can remember going from uh, being described as, this guy is brilliant, he's got a great future, he's an up and comer, he really knows the game well. I move over 12 inches, we lose a couple of games. This is the biggest idiot that has ever sat in a chair that's called a head coach, and it happens quickly, right? It's just like if you press, put your finger in your mouth, wet it a little bit, press an assistant coach's seat, ah, man, that's comfortable. You do the same thing with the head coach, that sucker's hot. It's a totally different seat. You learn that you're responsible for more than just yourself. You have to make every decision in the program. There are people who will critique you inside the organization and outside the organization. No different in the corporate world. Every manager or leader who walks in every day, it's not Shangri-La. There's a couple of people probably saying, man, what is she doing that for? Or are you serious? He has that job? You know, I told a friend of mine one time, uh, as Andrew knows, he saw me at Starbucks one day. Uh, one of the things I do each and every day is I get up, well, not now, but because you can't. I get up early, whatever, 4.30, 5 o'clock. Uh, I go into the Starbucks really early and do my reading for the day. Well, if every manager and every leader would walk into Starbucks with a disguise and sit down, they would find a lot out about their company. Mm. It is amazing the things I hear at tables you know, next to me. Can you believe she got promoted? Can you believe that he called that like a productive meeting? Can you believe like he's leading us? The guy doesn't know anything. If they would just go in and listen, they might actually become a more effective leader. I'm almost thinking of writing a book called Java Lessons. <laughs> Things I have learned by just sitting and uh, drinking a, a venti coffee. Now, if you drink a tall one, you may not hear everything. Right. Right. So the key is the venti. <laughs> I think you have a bestseller on your hands, Coach. I think you need to put that pen to paper. Well, if nothing else, I'm thinking of, of contacting Howard Schultz and saying, at least give me free coffee. Right. I'll spend enough money there, and I'll, I'll put uh, the Starbucks logo on the front of the cover. So, Coach, growing up, one of my favorite teams was the uh, the Celtics, and you had an opportunity to be part of the, the organization there for several years. Uh, tell us about your experiences in Boston. Uh, and did you – obviously, Kevin Garnett was there 
Um, and I, I think you have, you think of Kevin fondly. Uh, Paul Pierce was there. Who, who else was on those teams back in those days? Yeah, well, what they called the big three was uh, Kevin Garnett, Paul Pierce, and Ray Allen. But what we called the most important two were James Posey and P.J. Brown. Mm-hmm. Guys never – they're the two guys never, no one ever talks about. But if you ask Kevin, Paul, or Ray – who were really the most valuable players on the team, they might say uh, PJ and, and, uh, and, and Pose, James Posey, um, because they were kind of the captains and leaders of our second unit. But, but the biggest thing that, that struck me uh, when I was in their organization is um, if you talk to their players who played there, especially those who had played there for like uh, five plus years, they will tell you that, that they didn't play for the Celtics they will tell you they are a Celtic mm. big difference in the two. And that was all red hour back, right? Creating an atmosphere and a culture that everybody was really important. And when you were on this team, you, you understood what sacrifice was because everybody can't go out and do their thing. If you want to win a championship, right? But here's the deal. There's the definition of sacrifice to the normal person. And there's the true definition of sacrifice to a champion or a really successful person. You see the the average player, the average athlete, the average employee, they think sacrifice is something you give up. Well, what I learned on the Celtics is no, 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 no. That's, that's a loser's definition. A winner's definition of sacrifice is something you do for, not something you give up. It's something you do for. Like Ray Allen, one of the best shooters ever to play. He's open at the top of the key. There's a guy running at him, a defender, who's maybe going to contest his shot. He sees Paul Pierce in the corner. Ray makes that pass. Ray didn't give up a shot. What he did was something for the team because Paul was wide open, right? So it's a totally different mindset that you learn when you're around championship-level teams, organizations, or people. You know, I had an opportunity to do some things with Kobe. And uh, one of the things that Kobe said is, you know, uh, to be the best, you have to do things differently. And that struck me, right? You you can't just do like the normal things. You may have to discipline yourself a little harder. You may have to focus a little greater. You may have to uh, do a little more work, right? So I just learned uh, a totally different definition of what a true team is by being in that organization. And Doc was very much like Red Auerbach. Uh, Player-coach relationships were really important. Uh, Putting players into the best role to be the most effective and then selling those roles to the players because not everybody likes their role, right? But we, we always define it as it's what we need you to do for us to win a championship. Because then if they say they don't like their role, what are they telling their teammates? Hey, a championships are not important to me. Being the best team we can be, that's not important to me. My personal agenda is the most important thing. Well, you can't, you can't, you can't win that way. You know, Doc once said, everything of significance requires the help of someone else. Mm. And that's true. And that's, that's a team. And that's what the Celtics are. And that's what those superstars, Kevin, Paul, and Ray, they became great teammates. 
So who, who practiced the, the longest? Who was in, in the uh, facility the longest typically each day out of all those uh, players? The three best players. And, and how many times a day did Ray Allen uh, practice his shot? Well, it just depended on what time of the year it was. If we're in game 70 of an 82-game season, then he's worried more about efficiency than quantity, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, you may see them in at 10 o'clock at night. You may see them in um, uh, an hour before practice, then we practice two and a half hours, and they may stay another hour after practice. But what you find with the best of the best is it doesn't have to be the most hours. It has to be the, the, the most effective hours. When they came in, they practiced, uh, like in Ray's case, game shots from game spots at game speed. So every repetition that he did, they would be the exact same ones in, in a game, right? Um, because that, that's all about preparation. You know, I, I tell the story because um, I was with Ray every day when he was with the Celtics. Anytime he wanted to work out, myself and another coach were with him, right? We would rebound for him, et cetera. Sometimes we played defense on him. So um, I started to understand what preparation really means. You know, these guys, they, they don't just take a good shooter pill or great athlete pill, right? They work. Uh, they do things differently than the average player. So you, you two, because you follow basketball, it seems like you probably remember the shot that Ray Allen made in that series against San Antonio. Uh, LeBron took the shot from the, the left wing in front of the Miami Heat bench, missed. Chris Bosh got the rebound. Ray had the presence of mind to see that Chris definitely was going to secure it. They were down three, right? So he had to get behind the three-point line. He decided to speed backpedal there because he felt if he had to turn first, then run, then turn again, clock might have gone out or defender might have been able to catch up. So everybody, when he hit that shot, sent it in overtime. If you talk to the guys on San Antonio or Miami, they will tell you that's the shot that won the, the, the title. That shot won the title for the Miami Heat. So all my friends knew that I worked with Ray. So I wasn't with them in Miami because I was coaching elsewhere. But they, I got text when he hit that shot. Oh, man, he's always in that position. He's lucky. Oh, blah, blah, blah. And I wrote them all back. No, no, no. That's called preparation. Because the definition of preparation to successful people, or at least my, my this is my definition of it, it goes like this. Be there before you get there. That's preparation. I think I've heard you say that before. Yeah, be there before you get there. Well, Ray had already practiced that shot backpedaling to behind the three-point line thousands and thousands of times before. And if you listen to some of the post-game interviews with Ray, he will tell you he probably took that shot in pregame shooting 40 or 50 times that afternoon. He had already been there. Yeah. So it was no big deal, right? It's just like people, like when I go in and give a talk, I always want to get on the stage uh, the night before or early before anyone gets into the ballroom. And for me, the biggest thing I want to see is how wide is the crowd so it can, I can now focus in on making sure that I span the entire crowd when I speak. Right. And the second thing is probably something that no one else feels is important. I look for all the cords on the floor, mm. all the electrical cords, because what do you do if you're the speaker? They've just given you this incredible introduction. You walk up there. They think you're the like sliced bread. Right. And then two minutes in, you trip over a cord. What do you do? 
like you've lost all credibility, right? Yep. Well, I've already figured it out. I'm just walking out of the room. <laughs> I'm done. I said, I'm done. I can't, I can't, I can't get lower than that. So, but the point is this, be there before you get there. Right. I've already thought about like, uh, what happens if your PowerPoint, something happens to it in the middle of your talk. Some people get flustered. I already know exactly what I'm going to say. And it will take about 10 to 12 seconds. There'll be a little bit of laughter after that. I'll say another couple of things after that. Hopefully that minute will give them time to fix it. And if not, then I just go on. I always bring my notes up too, just in case that happens. I want to be there before the failure happens, right? So um, with Ray, you know, I just learned that that uh, uh, preparation has a different definition uh, when you're when you're really good. Yeah, Coach, I'll say that shot that Ray hit in the game against San Antonio, uh, I, it took the game into overtime, as you said. It was not a game winner, but I would argue it's one of the most uh, important shots in, in the history of the game. Yeah, yeah. And LeBron, LeBron, Chris, and Eric Spolst and Pat Riley will tell you that too. <laughs> that shot, when you brought it up, like a little, little piece of me died inside. I, I remember exactly where I was when he shot the ball, and I was like, please don't go in. Uh, deep down inside, I just knew it was happening. Because um, that, that was the first year after Ray had left Boston and he was in Miami, right? Yeah, yeah I, I think so, yeah. I was a little bitter about the whole situation. Yeah, well, he wasn't. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, and by the way, Coach, to think to practice a backpedal to the three-point line shot – and to do it 40 or 50 times before games, I, it wouldn't cross 99% of uh, basketball players' minds, I'm guessing. Well, no. First, a uh, couple of things. They think it was too silly a drill. Um, but what you find out is, um, you know, uh, we've all been lied to in our lives by our parents. And we did this with, with Jake. We've, we've been told that hard work gets you anywhere you want to go in life. Well, not today. The world's too competitive. Anyone who gets into the into the building at a particular company, they probably worked pretty hard or else they wouldn't have even been asked to join the company. Right. So if, if, if hard work is the given, then what's the separator? Right. Well, if hard work is the given, the separator is the unrequired work. This is the work that's not required of Ray Allen to do. Right. Things like being creative and coming up with this. He does another one where he does five push-ups, and then he pops up and he runs to some part of the floor and then we throw on the ball and he shoots it. And I remember asking him, why do you do that? And he said, Kevin, think about how I am defended. People are real physical with me. Any mm -hmm. shooter, they're real physical. They'll grab you, they'll pull you. And when you're trying to get those guys off, think about it. You tense your muscles because you're trying to push them off of you. You may have to grab their arm, right, and push it off, pull it off of you. So you're probably a little bit tense in your upper body. But then when you cut to receive the ball, that tenseness has to be able to leave your body and you've got to square up with nice fluidity. I said, okay, I get all that, but why the push-ups? He said, when I'm done five push-ups, my upper body is tight. Just like when that defender's grabbing me. So I have to be able to, to figure a way that between the, uh, getting up off the floor and receiving the ball from you and shooting it, that I now get back to a fluid, uh, less tight uh, body. 
who would have thought of that? He's, it's genius. It's the unrequired work that Ray, Kevin, Paul, you know, we used to kind of get on Paul, like Paul would be on the treadmill running his butt off uh, at 10 o'clock the morning of a game. And then we would have the, the shoot around, they call it a shoot around man bay, which is the practice where you go through what the other team's going to run tonight and how we're going to defend it. And we're thinking, man, he's going to, he's going to wear himself out. But that was Paul. Mm. He needed to do that to be ready that night. Ray needed to do all those drills to be ready for what he was going to face each and every night. Right. Kevin Garnett, you know, every, he's so intense and everyone would see him bang his head against the, the, the basket stanchion before each game. And people say, well, that's crazy. You know, and, and uh, what I would always say, no, that was Kevin getting into the mindset that he needed to be in to be Kevin Garnett. Right. Um, and that's what the best do. They get to the point where their mind and body are ready to give their best that day. Coach, one thing you did a lot in, in your career was, um, I, I guess, player development, right? Like you worked a lot with rookies. Um, I think you did, you uh, worked with Carmelo Anthony and LeBron James before the draft and things like that. With your understandings of, of what it takes to be great, like the examples you gave with Ray and Paul Pierce and Kevin, like how difficult was that to communicate it to a rookie who's, you know, first round draft pick coming and thinking they have it all figured out? Yeah, well, uh, it, it's all based on the player. Like with LeBron, he was a sponge. He couldn't get enough mm. because uh, like he said to me after our workout, because I got on him pretty hard during the workout because he needed to up the intensity level to make it a pro workout, not a high school workout. Right. So um, as we were walking off, I said, hey, Brian, look, I didn't mean to get on you that hard. You know, I, I may have even said a word you don't say in church. Right. So we're walking off and he looks and turns to me and said, coach, don't worry about it. I need to know every single thing I need to know to get better. And I thought to myself, he just taught me something. So when I went back to my room, I thought about that conversation because I, I had to fly out to Portland uh, because they had LeBron and Carmelo into Nike's campus to pitch them on becoming uh, endorsers. So that night it, it finally hit me what, what LeBron taught me. You know, the best of the best, they very seldom talk about that word best. Mm -hmm. And when they use it, they usually say we want to be the best team at the end of the year, right? Now, maybe when they get on later in their career, they talk about wanting to be the best to ever play the game. But most of them don't talk about that. But what the word you hear out of their mouths all the time is better. Mm. So we came up with a formula from that point forward for all the players. Hey, you want to become your best? Here's the formula. We would write it on the dry erase board. Better plus better plus better plus and however many betters you need that's what you got to do right so it gave them kind of a a path and then we would break down okay in your position how do you get better so the cell uh starts with the relationship right uh the kind of the unwritten rule is uh the stronger the relationship the unwritten rule in the nba the stronger the relationship is with the player the harder you can get on the player, the more demands you can put on the player. It just makes sense, right? Yeah. Right? So, um, so the key to working with those guys, because most of them do want to become the best they can possibly become, 
they do want to get better once they trust that you can help them get there not a problem at all but you're going to have like nothing is an absolute nothing is 100 nothing is perfect you will always have to have those players you can't reach and then you just hope another person on your staff can reach them and if no one on the staff can reach them then maybe you gotta you know move on LeBron's mindset as an 18-year-old kid, right? He, he was basically a senior in high school yeah. when you were working him out. That, that's incredible. I, I, I guess he was just born with that attitude. I, I don't – how do you explain that? Most, most people in their 40s or 50s don't think that way. Yeah, well, you know, he grew up in a tough environment, so you had to fight and claw, uh, maybe even just eat dinner, right? And I don't mean physically fight. Uh, but you might have to work a couple of jobs, right? Uh, your parents or your mom in his case, right? So he, he knew that hard work was his way to survive and, and eventually thrive. Uh, and he also probably, uh, he's a deep thinker. Like he's a deep thinker. Uh, Kevin Garnett's a deep thinker. Uh, people may not think that the case with either one of them, but LeBron puts a lot of thought to things. Uh, so I'm, I, I can probably see him sitting down really thinking about how do I, like, if I want to, if I want to become my best, how, how do I, what do I, what do I need to do to get there? Right. What attitude do I have to have? What mindset do I have to have? Knowing him, he probably read a lot about the players that he idolized and what they did to become as good as they became. So, um, yes, it's a very mature uh, mindset, but all the credit goes to him for cultivating that within himself. Yeah, he could have chosen a lot of different paths than the one he chose, and uh, he obviously chose well. Yeah. Very cool. Hey, so what are your uh, memories of the uh, championship series when the Celtics won in 08? Um, you know, a, a couple of things. Just seeing the happiness uh, in the face of every player. Um, another thing I remember is, uh, you know, what you find is, uh, like everyone asked me to see the ring that we, we got, because at the time it was one of the biggest rings ever, ever awarded to players because your own team decides what it's gonna be. And uh, our owner wanted to have a bigger, better ring than the, the Patriots, right? <laughs> like if I wore that thing, I would be like this. It was so heavy, right? As a matter of fact, I've never worn it. Mm. Now Jake's worn it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, because he was having a hard time getting a date to the prom and then he put that <laughs> sucker on. Right. And then two girls asked him. So, right. uh, uh, but oh, to me, only, only two coach. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, and both of them were like, Oh, for nine on their first asks. So, no, no. Jake actually really ha hasn't really worn it. Uh, but um, what you what I found was like, that's neat to have. But I never put it on. Um, I used to have to say I'm not sure where it is. But I know where it is now in the house. Uh, it's not it's not out for display. And in, in, this is my office. This is the neat part of Zooms, right? You get to see where like people go do their thing. Um, so, um, but what I found was it's, it's not what you get when you do something out of the ordinary. It's not what you get, say the ring. It's what you become because of what you had to go through to get that. 
So I remember all the uh, extra preparation, all, all those days where I felt I had to come in and, and, and raise my own game to the next level to be able to help these guys get to where they want to go and, and dock where he wants to go. And then I also remember that both uh, my, my father and Doc's father had passed away, Doc that season and um, my dad earlier. And um, I remember, whoops. You're still there. We're still good. There? Yeah, we're yeah. still good. Okay. I remember um, at, at one point saying to Doc, hey, our dads are up there looking down on us. They're really proud. So, uh, so that was kind of a neat moment as everybody was going crazy all around us. That's uh, really neat. You and Doc obviously uh, became close, and I imagine you're still close. Did you follow him out to L.A. for the Clippers job? Yeah. Mm -hmm. so sure you, did. How, how long were you two together? Uh, maybe 13 years. It's a long time. So tell us about Doc. I mean, obviously, you, you like Doc a ton. Uh, what, what gravitates uh, people to Doc? Great human being. Um, has time for everybody. Like if you were to pass him on the street and didn't know who he was, um, you know, he talked to you, right? Uh, especially if he came up and said, hi. Uh, he, he, he makes time for people. Uh, he also is a very deep, deep thinker. And I love being around people like that. He's a very caring individual, right? He's very team oriented. Uh, He's, he's got a winner's ego, not a loser's ego. Uh, by that, I mean, um, he feels confident in all the work he's done, all the study he's done, all the research he's done, uh, all the thought he's put into things. So he should feel good uh, that, that he's a good coach, but not that fake thing where it's all about me. That's not who he is. That's a loser's ego, right? My articles in the paper, my uh, interviews in, on ESPN, Right. He, he doesn't deal. He doesn't worry about that stuff. So um, and he's always trying to help people just get better. So uh, for me, it went from, uh, you know, coaching for him and then uh, obviously becoming friends. I can uh, I can attest to that. I don't know if you remember, uh, but we went up one spring break. I think it was sixth or seventh grade, maybe. Uh, I think Gary Payton was playing uh, for the Celtics. Um, and we went up and we got to, Jake and I went through the facilities and everything. And uh, I remember I was, I was lifting weights in the Celtics weight room, which at the moment, like I could have been by myself and like, this is the coolest thing I think I've ever done. Uh, and I looked over and Doc Rivers, I think was, was working out in the same weight room. And uh, like the way he was talking to me and working out just next to me, was like, I had known him for the last five years and it yeah. was like a normal conversation. It was easy to communicate back with them just because it was, you know, just another person and not Doc Rivers. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> there's no pedestal in his life. Uh, so he, he just, uh, he walks on the same streets that we do and that, that's how he goes, goes about it. Um, so he's all about just helping. Yeah. He, he's a, he's a really easy guy to root for. Is my oh, yeah. yeah, for sure. And, and I, I should know this. He's still coaching, right? He's still with the Clippers. No, he's with the 76ers. 76ers now. Oh, I didn't realize that had happened. The yeah. pandemic has done uh, horrible things to my my fandom. Uh, no, no. He's now uh, first year with the Sixers, and they're doing really well. 
as they should. They're talented, and Doc's a really good coach. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, wow, I've never rooted for the Sixers. Well, that's not true. I rooted for them back when Dr. J played, but it's been a long time. Since Doc's in Philly, I may have to root for the Sixers again. <laughs> Sounds good. So uh, you, you've talked about Jake. Tell us about the rest of your family, Coach. Well, for, for, for us, it's just Wendy, Jake, and I in, okay. in our immediate family here. Uh, and then uh, we don't have enough time to get into all the other nine brothers and sisters who are scattered all around the country. Um, suffice it to say, they're, uh, uh, they're, do they're, they're doing well, uh, have had good careers. Um, so, uh, so all is good. So, so go ahead, Andrew. I was just going to say uh, the comment on Jake. What's his? Uh, I I know what it is, but for Paul to know, what's Jake's full name? Michael Christopher Eastman. <laughs> now, how we came up with Jake, I have no idea. Well, yeah, I do because that was my nickname in in high school. So, um, I guess Wendy and I just started calling him Jake, and he looks like a Jake. Yeah. So it fits. I, I keep telling him you ought to change it like uh, officially. Yeah. Because, you know, when he when he gets his uh, plane tickets and all, your your name has to match that which is on your license. Right. So he's always got to do it through Michael. Yeah, I always thought it was funny. I mean, I, I've known Jake since third grade and I think it was like freshman year of high school when he told me that. And like, I think to that day, I, it crosses my mind a couple of times a year. I'm just like, how? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Who would have known? Right. It, it's a great nickname to have when I was growing up. Uh, I mean, Paul's a fairly boring name. I wanted to be Jack or Jake. Ah. And I never pulled the trigger to legally Very change. Very cool. Hey, so coach, probably one of your biggest jobs was uh, athletic director at Randolph-Macon College. I'm saying that a little sarcastically. I'm, I'm in Ashland now. Uh, my mom taught it at Randolph-Macon. Uh, I used to play basketball in the old gym, the new gym, and then the new, new gym that later uh, came around. I, I love the school. I love the people there. You spent a year there. Do you have any memories of uh, being at Randolph-Macon? Yeah, what a great, what a great place. Um, you know, the, the coaches there uh, were so enjoyable to work with. Uh, every, all positive. The, the, uh, I guess if there was any negative at all, is, is you just, you had to say no, because you just didn't have the, the funds and the resources sometimes to do the things that you'd love to do. And uh, sometimes you'd have to say no to a coach, right? Um, uh, and that was the, the only like down part of the, the, the whole thing. Uh, you know, um, Carol LaHaye uh, went to the national tournament that year. Uh, with the basketball team, um, Mike was the uh, was a younger coach back then. Uh, Mike Rhodes, so uh, Jeff Burns, who's now the athletic director, you know he was coaching back then. So uh, all good. Uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, the people on campus were terrific, great to work with. Uh, the alums uh, did what they could. Uh, sometimes they got over vociferous. Um, but uh, but I, I always figured out a nice way to tell them to be quiet. So, uh, you know, what you have to do in those positions sometimes. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a, a tiny Division three school, and the alumni are, are very, very vocal and uh, very, very proud to be from Randolph-Macon. Yeah, yeah, which says a lot about the school. Yeah, it really does. 
Cool. Hey, so you, you ended up being in the front office. Uh, was that a move that you wanted? Did you enjoy that? Tell us about being in front office. I have no concept of what that's like for the Clippers. Yeah, well, uh, front office is an everyday, all year round uh, position. Uh, I, I was the um, vice president of basketball operations. So in, an, in, a, in a professional franchise, you have a vice president in charge of the basketball operations, and then um, you have one on the business side, right? And then above you are, is the owner. Uh, and the year I took it, there was no owner because our previous owner uh, was, uh, was stripped of all his ownership duties, Donald Sterling. Yeah. So um, uh, that was why Doc wanted me to move into that position because he wanted someone who he could trust because we were somewhat rudderless, right? At the very top of leadership. So he wanted someone who, could, who he could trust that could maintain the culture that Doc wanted, right? And to get everybody to buy in uh, to that. So that was my main thrust uh, the year I was in it. And we had agreed that I would do it for one or two years until things, the, the organization got some stability. Uh, and then I would go back to coaching. So, which is what happened. Uh, uh, there. But, uh, you know, when you're an administrator or, or in that position there, uh, you're in charge of everything that touches the basketball side of the organization. You're not in charge of ticket sales. That's the business, right? You're not in charge of um, uh, promotions. That's the business side of the organization. Uh, you're not in charge of sponsorships, uh, sky boxes, all that stuff. That's them. Um, so, uh, so I had a general manager underneath me and he, he was the one in charge of like the draft and free agency. Now I would sit in on all those meetings, um, <clears throat> but he had the final say in that. And he and doc worked together on personnel issues. Um, I worked together with doc on all of the, everything else uh, involved on the basketball side. So you were there after Sterling was taken out of his ownership seat. I remember just being a, an American citizen, knowing that that was a uh, that was national news for a long time. I mean, that was a saga that lasted, I think, weeks at least, if not months. And had it calmed down by the time you got there, or was it still sort of a frenzy out there in L.A.? No, it, 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 that's why I was put in the position. Yeah, because there was so much stuff going on. Um, it was actually an international uh, yeah. event. Uh, and the reason I say that is when President Obama happened to be overseas in meetings at the time. And um, the first question of his press conference that particular morning was, uh, can you give us your reaction to uh, the Donald Sterling situation? Wow. So, um, you know, because it was a it was a, a, a racially charged uh, issue. So. Uh, but you know what you find in in when you're in the when you're in crisis leadership mode, uh, there are many lessons uh, that that I learned through that particular time. Uh, probably the the one most important is to have one voice, right? Because what we told the players is, look, the story is the story. It's the racial insensitivity that has been displayed by your former owner. 
But if we go out and Chris Paul, you say this, and, and Blake Griffin, you say this, and JJ Redick, you say this, and all of a sudden those things aren't consistent in their message, then we become the story. No, 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 no. Don't take the story off of what the story needs to stay on. Because the story was greater than just the man involved, right? Because it was the, it was the racial inequality. And uh, some of the things that happened even in, in his business side, not the basketball side of his uh, domain. So, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a, a time where you, you really had to think first, talk second. You know, so often we want to just talk and then we'll think about whether that was good or not. And, and what you learned or what I learned was uh, pause. That was probably really one of the most important words that, that floated in my mind uh, each and every day. Because when you're in that vice president position, you're visible, right? But Doc, we ended up, the players decided that Doc was going to be the voice. And he was also, and, and, and at that, like the day it happened in the short time thereafter, uh, I wasn't the VP, I was still an assistant coach because we were just trying to get through that, right? So I can remember the, uh, we were in Golden State uh, when it happened. And uh, after the game, we were flying back to LA. And uh, for the first time ever, I didn't see Doc open his computer and start watching the game, the film mm -hmm. of the game. You could see he was deep in thought because right now he had to be the leader of the entire organization. Because what people don't know is our people downtown on the business side, they were getting calls and some crazy stuff going through on some of those messages uh, mm -hmm. to them. So they were emotionally hit, right? So we landed at about, I want to say about three o'clock that morning. And at uh, eight o'clock the next morning, he had to be in front of the entire downtown portion of the organization to just settle things down, right? Um, but that's what great leadership is uh, in, in times of crisis. Uh, they have a calming influence uh, about them such that, that something that has maybe risen to this level of challenge, issue or problem doesn't rise to this. Right. So Doc was terrific through all of that. Um, and uh, I think really helped uh, not just the organization, but helped uh, the public conversation. Absolutely. I think Doc was uh, the right guy for, for that role at that time. Uh, I couldn't think of anybody better for that role yeah. in, in that situation. So what else you guys got? I got a couple of minutes here. Yeah, no worries, Coach. Thank you so much for joining us. If you just want to share what you're up to these days. That would be great. Yeah. So right now what I'm doing is uh, for the last, uh, I think it's four years. Again, it might be five since I've been out. Uh, I'm speaking in both the corporate world and the sports world. And prior to the pandemic, I was doing probably, I don't know, around 70 talks a year. Uh, maybe 65% in the corporate world, 35 in the sports world. So um now it's become virtual, right? And now uh, I've been asked the last uh, few months actually uh, to come in and actually uh, train leaders. Uh, so I put together, a um, well, depending on how it goes with each individual company, 
a uh, six to, to 10 module uh, training program for leaders. So I'm starting to do that a little bit more, which is different than just being on stage. Uh, so, uh, but what I'm seeing is the pandemic, uh, it's starting to break a little bit in terms of people maybe going back to live events uh, in the fall. Uh, I think some are, are uh, you know, very positive and they're trying to do some even in late uh, summer. Uh, so uh, should all, everything go well and, and we get back to, to whatever it is we get back to, um, I'm looking forward to getting back on the, uh, into the live speaking on stage. Yeah, I think we're ready to uh, get back and uh, be normal and social again. Uh, I'm really looking forward to it. Go ahead, Andrew. I was just going to say it, it's it's almost like a, a light at the end of the tunnel when you hear, of all people, right, Roger Goodell come out and say, hey, the NFL, we're going to have full, fully packed stadiums. And you're like, all right, we're, we're almost there. Yeah, I agree. So, Coach, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. It says a ton about you uh, and your relationship with Andrew and, and Andrew himself for, for the three of us to get together. It's a real treat for me. I really appreciate you joining us. No, it's my pleasure. And uh, it's great to meet you, Paul. And uh, But I do have to tell anyone who, who is listening, um, uh, the reason I did it was because of Andrew. And, and he asked, because uh, I was actually trying to slow down on some of these. I, I was telling Andrew, I've done about, uh, I think it's, over 125 zooms or podcast presentations uh in the pandemic months so i was gonna i was, I was actually on a break from it um uh but when andrew asked it was an easy yes i really, really appreciate it yep he's an easy guy to uh like and uh do things for <laughs> yeah, yeah now if he can just put some production behind it we're good we're working on it we're working yeah. on it all right you guys thank you thanks guys thank you coach See ya. See ya. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd also really appreciate if you'd rate and review us. You can find us at scodopodcast.com.